Welcome to the Founder and Funder Experience, brought to you by Valence Advisory and Mattermade. This podcast serves to bring to light the different journeys select founders and funders took to get to where they are today. We hope their lives and their learnings continue to inspire both present and future innovators. Hello, everybody. My name is Arjun Dave Arora, and I am the founder and managing partner of Valence Advisory. We support founders and funders and help accelerate their efforts via people, strategy, and capital. And now off to John. Thank you, Arjun. So uh, name's John Lowe. Uh, I'm an advisor at Valence Advisory. I'm the lead on leadership, coaching, and communications. Love facilitating both one-on-one and one-to-many. And today we have a wonderful guest, Adam Jackson, who's a serial founder. Hello. Hello, Adam. And I'm not going to give away too much about what Adam has done, what he's currently doing. I'm going to leave him to talk and lead the show. So, Adam, to start, let's start with the present state of affairs. What is your current role and what are you working on now? Sure. Well, hey, guys, thanks a lot for having me. It's a privilege to be with you. So today we are working on a project called Brain Trust. And uh, Brain Trust is a talent-controlled, talent-owned marketplace that connects sort of high-end product development, design, engineering talent with generally Fortune 1000 companies that need their help. And that in and of itself is not a new concept, but our sort of business model slash network model, the, the way our ownership structure is structured is, is actually very unique. So I can go into more detail about how that works at any time. Please do, please do, at your convenience. Yeah, sure. So maybe I'll just take uh, a minute or two here and give a little background on Brain Trust. Again, my name's Adam. Uh, I, so I'm a software engineer by training. I uh, went to school for computer science at Vanderbilt, moved out here after school, uh, out here to San Francisco. Uh, and I've been out here for about 16 years now. In that time, I've started four venture-backed companies, all marketplaces, all different categories. Uh, the first one was a local shopping business that helped uh, local brick and mortar stores aver- use the internet to advertise their products. And back in 2004, when I started that, that was a novel concept. We grew that into a national marketplace and were eventually acquired by Intuit and joined the product, the QuickBooks team there as a, a product manager. After that, I started my second company called Driverside, which connected car owners with service mechanics that had sort of excess capacity in their bays to, to work on cars. And so we would connect drivers with these mechanics sort of just in time and use some some kind of nifty algorithms at the time and and, and also grew that into a marketplace or a national marketplace and were acquired by Advanced Auto Parts, which is a, uh, a large, it's a big box auto parts retailer, mostly on the East Coast. Uh, I took a little bit of time off after that and then uh, was connected with the, the two guys, Phil McGraw and his son, Jay McGraw. And Phil McGraw is better known as Dr. Phil from TV. And these guys are sort of serial entrepreneurs, but with television shows. And they had this cool idea. This is back in 2012 when it's sort of like, there's an app for that was just crushing every category. And so their idea was, you know, there's a shortage of physicians and it's a long wait times in the United States. I mean, this is like pre-COVID, like it was still really bad. And they thought, you know, why don't we just like make a clever app and staff it with great doctors and like have a thing easy to use. And like, we'll talk about it on our TV show. And so I linked up with them. And when maybe later when we get to serendipity, I can tell that story. But it, it was a cool match. Um, we built that company in 2012. I served as CEO for the first four years and grew it from, from basically this little cash pay, didn't take insurance, 
uh, direct-to-consumer app into now what's now uh, one of the largest uh, hospital systems in the country by visit volume, not by revenue yet, but we're getting there. And, uh, and it's all virtual. It's all uh, doctors treating people, doctors and psychologists and psychiatrists practicing over video. Uh, so there's no, no buildings involved. So I had a lot of fun building and running that business. About four years in, it became a giant healthcare company. And we put in what I like to call a real manager. Uh, that's Hill Ferguson, uh, who's our current CEO. And he's just done a phenomenal job of growing the company. And we're hoping uh, we can take it public here someday. If companies ever go public again, then we hope to be one of them. And so, uh, so I'm still very close to the company. I don't work there anymore day to day. And then I took a little time off and sort of got back to my passion, my roots, which is kind of deep tech and engineering. And at the time, this, so this is about 2016, it was really, it was all blockchain. I had bought Bitcoin years before. A friend of mine who runs a chain of internet casinos told me about it back in 2011. And I didn't think too much about it. I just bought a few and uh, unfortunately forgot about them. And then so got back to the technology in 2016 and really became passionate about this concept of a token representing ownership and control in a network of people. And, and like, and what could that do? Uh, how could that change how we organize people change the economics of networks and that kind of thing. I wasn't like, I didn't really I don't care about remittance. I'm not a payments. I think store value is interesting. Maybe, I, you know, it's like just not my thing. I've been running, founding and investing in marketplaces my entire life, right? Like my, I was born with this business model of like, you know, connect two people, create a trusted environment to, to uh, transact and then take as much rake as you can off every transaction, right? And that's what all of my businesses have done, right? or some close derivative to that. Uh, and every, almost all the investments I've made have been, have been along those lines. And then along comes this token technology, and it's like, wait a minute, you could program these things to represent you know, ownership and control in a network instead of shares of a Delaware C-Corp. And so this kind of became like a passion project. Uh, it became a token economic model looking for a category. And so the concept was simple. Like, what if you could have a network or marketplace? I'm going to use those words interchangeably. What, what if you could have a, a network of people, say a two-sided marketplace, for example, sort of be owned and operated by its users instead of a central corporation? And like, what, wouldn't that be interesting, right? Like, imagine if Uber had taken some of its ownership in the early days and given it to its drivers and then gave more of it to the drivers as they maintain five-star ratings and invited more drivers and invited more riders and sort of just like programmatically distributed this control of the network out to its, uh, its users. When I say ownership, I don't mean like a stock or a security, like returning dividends or profit. It's actually the opposite, right? Like these networks could actually operate as nonprofits. It's not a profit return mechanism. It's just a, a unit of control and influence over the network. And so it, back to the Uber example, imagine if the control of that network had been given to the participants early, you still need that, that entrepreneur, right? You still need that Travis in the center to break ground and, and really push something into existence. Like we're not saying you don't need that leadership from the start, but as big networks and marketplaces grow, the incentives become misaligned between the operators and the participants, right? And what I'm saying is that properly configured token economy 
that doesn't need to be true anymore, right? You can align the incentives between the operators and the participants. And so that's where brain trust came from. So back to my Uber example, if, you know, if Uber had sort of more fairly compensated its users, fast forward 10 years on IPO day, instead of this $85 billion IPO making, you know, six or seven dudes in San Francisco, multi, multi billionaires, and then, you know, like a third of, and this is, these are actual numbers. It's like a third of the Uber driver. I'm sorry, it's half Uber drivers are living at or below the poverty line. This is by the way, pre-COVID. So it's, I'm sure it's much worse now, but you know, so, so according to Georgetown University study, half of the Uber drivers are living at or below the poverty line. And many of them are even living in their cars during the week to provide the service, right? While like seven guys in San Francisco became billionaires. Not only like is it intensely unfair, it's just bad business, right? Like that's not good for any of us. So this new brain trust token economy, it's very different. It basically inverts the model. You give the ownership and control of the network out to all of the users in proportion to how much those users are helping. So with the brain trust token, for example, the only way to get our token is to invite more talent to the network or invite more clients to the network or vet our talent or keep a good reputation. You know, do things that help brain trust, right? And brain trust itself is a nonprofit foundation. It's not business, it's not returning profits or dividends to anyone. What it ends up doing is it's the token represents control and voting and governance of the network. And so we can the users can decide what new categories do we get into and how do we govern ourselves and how do we shape the brand, all these things. And that doesn't mean there still can't be strong leaders, you know, helping push that along, but it's much more of a cooperative feel rather than, you know, a couple people in San Francisco taking all the shots and then taking as much value out of the middle as you can. It's, it's basically a, a, a technology and a business model to destroy the middleman and give all that value that was being taken back to the people who use the network. Wow, nicely said. So as you think about brain trust and the future challenges you face in growing it out, what are some of the non-obvious challenges that you've thought through and how can you control for them if you can? And if you can't, what sort of serendipity are you hoping will come through to help accelerate your vision? Well, we are living through one of the most dramatic bits of, of tragedy and hopefully serendipity coming you know, with this COVID-19 uh, pandemic that we're living through. All of the, the downsides of this have, have obviously been well-documented. You know, our business, you know, clients are suffering and therefore our business will suffer with it, with them. And that's a sad thing. The serendipity, I think, and the silver lining, it's a bit early, but what we're seeing here is Brain Trust is sort of promoting this concept of, you know, hire remote workers to augment your core business. And we chose, by the way, like I use this ride sharing example for Brain Trust. Brain Trust, you know, we're not in the gig economy, we're in this sort of higher end almost gig economy, like we connect really high-end freelancers, most of them ex-Google, ex-Netflix, ex-Amazon, who don't want corporate jobs anymore, right? They actually want to be their own boss. So they love Braintrust because Braintrust isn't taking a bunch of fees from them, right? We don't have a big rake on our marketplace. So, you know, we're solving that problem for these companies where companies before might have had some hesitancy with Braintrust. They said, well, like, a lot of companies, you know, before two weeks ago, you know, were pretty against work from home, right? They didn't trust remote work. And I think there used to be good reasons to not trust remote work. I don't think there's any good reasons now uh, with all the amazing technology we have, like what we're talking over and Asana and things like that. But two weeks ago, the whole country basically was forced to figure out how to work from home. 
And I think there's some serendipity in that for brain trust. I, I think that'll be a silver lining on this, you know, pretty terrible tragedy we're all living through. So well said. And that, I mean, Arjun can speak to this and that checks out anecdotally across the board with what we've observed across venture funds, GPs, and also founders and their teams. Sorry for interrupting, Adam. Was there anything you wanted to add to that? On the serendipity side, I mean, I, you know, I think the framework from which I've always looked at life is like, don't freak out about the stuff you can't control. Like what you can control is you can hone your skills you can build good relationships, be a good person, operate with integrity. And if you just keep doing that every day, you know, the bad stuff will eventually turn into good stuff, right? And the good stuff will be even better. And, and so, you know, it's like a, I'm a very type A, like kind of control freak, if you will. I've been called many times. And so for people like me, that's, it's difficult to not get upset when things don't go your way. And so the framework I've built for myself is just like, you can, you know, let yourself experience that emotion and then walk through it, get past it. And like, you can find serendipity in almost everything at that point. Really well said. And you know, Adam, as a serial entrepreneur and having had some time on the block through different economic climates, was there a time where you experienced a significant challenge as an entrepreneur and really you didn't have the wisdom of life experience or foresight to be able to pull yourself out? What did you do? How did you navigate that? Were there mentors who were guiding lights or was it, you know, and it could have been someone who reported to you, right? Mentors can come in all shapes and forms. They could be someone who worked with you. They could be a co-founder or someone you grab coffee off, right? If you could unpack that a bit, I think it would be very relevant for emerging founder talent, especially during this economic climate and existing who are really faced with a challenge that they're empowered to solve, but just because they don't have a precedence, they could use some words of wisdom from you. I have a lot of stories. I, I can tell, you know, maybe one of the poignant ones in a second, but again, this is, for me, it comes back to frameworks. Like you pointed at, you hinted at it earlier, right? Your mentors can come from any direction. And so, you know, surround yourself with amazing people. One thing, like that's a cliche and like, of course, everyone tries to hire amazing people and like, you know, A players hire A players and B's hire C's and C's hire D's. And we get all that. Um, one thing I, like, you know, since this is sort of a, a startup topic we're talking about here, one thing startups get a little discouraged by, and, and I did too, and maybe this will be helpful to, to those folks is like, you know, startups also say, like, often say, well, like, we can't afford the best talent. Like, the best talent might be at Facebook or Google or whatever, and there's no way we could afford those salaries. And the truth is, like, yeah, I mean, you could use some stock options and, and you can get your talent that way, but there's not a direct correlation between financial requirements and expertise or horsepower or dedication. You know, I've had plenty of expensive people who were terrible and I've had plenty of, I, mean, I shouldn't say plenty, some, and I've had some, you know, really inexpensive or sub-market rate people who are just incredible. And so don't like drop that preconception that you have to pay for quality. It's just not true with people. I think quality people deserve to be compensated fairly. Absolutely. And so, you know, one of the doors that opened for me was, um, you know, this kind of goes back to why we started brain trust, but like, you know, talent is spread evenly across the world. Opportunity is not right. That's just like, that's just the world we live in. And so, you know, I've had, I, we don't have a single full-time engineer or product person on brain trust. They're all freelancers from our network. And 
very few of them live in the United States. There's nothing wrong with the people who live in this. There's awesome American talent, but there's awesome talent in Eastern Europe and in South America and in Asia. So, you know, that's like one thing I would say, you know, don't like drop any preconceptions around and open your mind up a little bit. Um, you talk, that's a, that's a general, you, you talk more like, I can tell you like a specific story of just getting torpedoed and like, you know, how please I, do, please do. I mean, you know, in Arjun knows this story well too. I mean, you know, when you're an entrepreneur, you know, like your job is to get hit with torpedoes and we're certainly getting hit with one right now. I'll tell you that as all of us are, but you know, talking about like having mentors and, and smart people around you. I mean, what, when I think of the word mentor, like I never had a formal mentor. It's just some, it's, it's a regret I have. I should have gone out of my way to find one. And it's, you know, like shocking. I hear these stories about, it. it's like, yeah, I just like emailed Tim Cook and he was cool, you know, whatever. So I never did that, but I got this chance at Dr. On a Man to work with Dr. Phil, who's Phil McGraw, who's this, you know, just unbelievably driven successful, dedicated guy. And he's one of the most, if not the most behind Oprah, you know, the most successful person on television. You know, I got to work with he and his son, Jay. Jay's my age and, and also a really sharp guy. And the three of us started Doctor on a Man. And, you know, there were a couple times there where we were dealing with regulatory problems, like some serious, like end your business life kind of legal problems only because telemedicine, the, the type of medicine Dr. On a Man practices over video, like used to be kind of a gray area from a regulatory standpoint. It's, it's actually really clear now. And thank God it is because it's, it's helping quite a bit these days. And so I was, you know, I'm, I'm not a doctor. I'm not a lawyer. You know, I'm this internet dork in San Francisco running this national medical practice. And it was, I had a lot of uncomfortable moments. So I would look to, there were a handful of investors that I really trusted. I'll, I'll just name, you know, Brian Roberts from Venrock is a, such a high integrity person, really was there for me a lot. I really looked up to Dr. Phil. I mean, this is like, I never really watched his TV show. I didn't know his, his shtick, but like he is a, you know, he's all business. The guy takes life so seriously. Uh, he's so strong-willed and so smart and so well-prepared and is not afraid of anything, right? And we put these challenges head on and there's, you know, lots of colorful language and like, it really taught me like how to really fight. And if like, if you're going to pick any quality as a founder CEO, it has to be per perseverance, right? It just, like that's the only thing you absolutely have to have, right? You have to fight until you're dead. And, you know, it, it, otherwise it's just not going to work out. You're going to rely on luck. You know, like I always have good lawyers, right? Like I, for Dr. On a Man, had and still have the best lawyers in that business. Today, for Brain Trust, we, we operate in this sort of murky regulatory world again. You know, it's I don't like businesses like this. I just end up finding myself in them. And so, you know, have great investors, great lawyers, surround yourself with, with great people. And if you can be lucky, like I have, four out of four times having great co-founders, it makes all the difference. You know, I, I could never, you cannot do it alone, right? It's, it's very hard when, when you're doing, building a big system like this. Because we still have a few minutes. Just to synthesize, you know, most industries currently have been torpedoed in light of recent mass events. Some have not, obviously, but for a lot of the founders, you know, uh, trying to navigate this uncertain and challenging territory, what kind of uh, words of advice would you like to share, Fanny? And if you don't, that's fine, but uh, I kind of want to leave that open to you. 
Yeah, well, and I'll try to say things that haven't been said over and over. You know, there's a lot of kind of generic advice out there like, hey, you know, go get some, go raise some venture debt and draw that down, right? And like that kind of yeah, shit. Yeah, we appreciate um, the real the, the real feedback. Thank you. Yeah, or, you know, yeah, I mean, there's salary cuts and layoffs and all that stuff. And I've been through it all, you know, and it, it's, they're very hard things to go. I would say, look, your employees, your customers, your vendors, like they're all going through this too, right? So one thing we, you know, my co-founder at Braintrust, Gabe, he's a phenomenal operator, a brilliant, and a, just a, like a good human being, a really great person. And, and I work ex- exceptionally well together. And well, one of the things we rolled out as soon as this COVID thing started happening is like allay everyone's fears, you know, like we're in a fear death spiral right now. And so say, look, like we got your backs, guys. We had to trim things and extend runway like everybody else. We're not immune to that. Give people the time they need and, and just like be a human to them. And then we, we did the same thing with our vendors, right? Like we called the PR firm, same thing. We, then we called the, you know, everybody, our lawyer, the other people we work with. We're like, hey guys, like, you know, I know we're usually playing in the NFL here and we're hitting hard and it's, you know, it gets bloody sometimes, but like, this is going to be okay. Like we're going to, we, if we lose a couple months here, no one's going to die. Like knock on wood, literally no one's going to die. A lot of people say it. I, I just think like if you're a leader, you're in a unique ability to actually and let other like actually make a difference in other people's anxiety levels. Great. Adam, I think that's a great place to drop the mic. Thank, thank you. So much, Adam. Really appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you for taking the time.